Well, good morning, Hawaii Church. Uh, it's good to see all of you here this morning uh, to continue as we hear God's word to worship our Lord Jesus Christ through his word. Uh, would you please open your Bibles to Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11? Uh, if you're using the church Bibles under the seats, Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 can be found on pages or page 998. 998. Titus chapter 3. Verses 1 through 11 will be our passage of study this morning. This is uh, the second part of a two-part message from Titus chapter 3. And in this week's message, as well as in last week's message, uh, we've been talking about the Apostle Paul's instructions on how Christians are to live in a pagan, secular, and let's be frank, evil world. Now, before we read our passage, would you please bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, we do ask that you would speak to us this morning, and we pray, God, that it would be your word, and by your spirit, that you would teach us, that you would lead us into all truth, and that you would help us, Father, to understand you better, that we would see ourselves for who we truly are, and that we would once again recognize the great mercy and love and grace that you have poured out upon this world as you have sent your son Jesus to die for our sins. Father, I pray that by your spirit you would convict our hearts, that you would encourage us and exhort us, Lord, that we might continue uh, to walk with you and to live lives that are pleasing and honorable to you, but also, Lord, that we might be able to live in such a way that people would see Jesus Christ in us. So we thank you again for this morning. We look forward to what you have for us, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're going to be reading Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, which says this. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unpro unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, this is part two of a two-part message. So if you weren't here last week, and even if you were, let me begin with a brief recap of what we've already talked about. Paul wrote this letter to his disciple Titus, whom he had left on the island of Crete so that Titus could organize and set up uh, all the new churches that had been planted in various towns on that island. 
Titus was to appoint elders in every church in order to protect and to strengthen the churches against false teachers and to teach the Cretan Christians how they ought to live in a very evil, pagan, secular society. See, Cretan culture was in some ways similar to but actually far worse than our own. The government was oppressive. They had no regard for God. The people were taxed unfairly. The culture was filled with sexual perversion, misogyny, and inequality. The churches were, as mentioned, threatened by false teachers, and the people of Crete were renowned as liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. You know, if we think that living as a Christian in 21st century America is difficult, we should count our blessings that we weren't alive in Jesus' day. For first century Christians, life was very, very difficult. And so when we hear these words of the Apostle Paul to Titus, we should try to understand Paul's words in their proper context. And remember that these are not just nice, idealistic, churchy slogans written to middle-class American Christians. Rather, we are to understand that these are the very words of God written by real people to real people, living with real struggles in a world with very real problems. And so we come to our passage this morning and we ask ourselves, how are Christians supposed to live in a sinful, dark, godless culture? We'll look again at verse 1. Paul tells Titus, to remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. In the midst of a very sinful, evil society, Paul is exhorting the Christians on Crete to be submissive and obedient to their authorities, to always be ready, willing, and even eager to do good to guard their tongues and not speak evil of any person, to not be quarrelsome, but to be gentle, meek, and courteous to all people. In other words, Paul is saying, do not respond to the evil that is all around you with more evil from within you. Don't let the culture outside of you control what's going on inside of you, in your inner spirit, your heart, your mind, do not let it dictate how you live. No matter how evil the world is around you, don't let that evil change who you are. Rather, Christians are to live like people who have experienced the life-changing, life-giving mercy, grace, and love of God. And as we recognized last week, this was no easy task. It's hard to turn the other cheek. It's hard to pray for those who persecute you. It's hard to love your neighbor as yourself. Bottom line, it is hard to live like a Christian. And Paul knew that. So to exhort the Cretan Christians and to address any hesitations or excuses they may have had as to why they couldn't live good, submissive, gentle, courteous lives, Paul reminds them of the basis as to why they ought to live this way. He reminds them that they, too, were once just as wicked as the unbelievers around them. Listen to what Paul says in verse 3. For we ourselves 
were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Now, these are some very, very harsh words for us, aren't they? Especially when you take note that Paul is not just talking about the liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons of Crete. No, he's talking about all of us, Paul and Titus included. These are harsh words, but this is what we must come to grips with because Christians need to understand and remember the depth and depravity of who we are, were before we were saved. You know, we may not have done evil, sinful actions, but according to Scripture, before we became Christians, we were by nature, within the core of who we are, disobedient, sinful, rebels against God, just like the rest of the world. And this is why Paul tells Titus to remind the Christians, to remind them of their vile past, because when we forget our sinful past, we also lose sight of the goodness and loving kindness of God. And this is what Paul wants now, Titus now to remind the Christians to, uh, to look at. Look at again at verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, against this dark, dark backdrop of verse 3, where we're, we're told of the malice and the envy and the hatred that was within all of us, Paul now says in verse 4 that the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior has appeared. God's goodness and loving kindness is like a light that is shining forth in this darkness. God sending his only begotten son into a dark, evil world is the ultimate picture of God's infinite goodness and infinite kindness and infinite mercy. Now, what kind of father would ever do such a thing with their own child? What kind of God would send his holy, perfect, righteous son to die for the sins of an evil people? Well, I'll tell you, only a God who is infinitely good, infinitely kind, and infinitely merciful. And the most remarkable thing about this is that he did not save us because we were righteous, loyal, worthy, deserving people. You know, it wasn't like he was saving people, good people, who tragically by accident found themselves drowning in a cesspool of sewage. Rather, and, and please forgive me for this analogy here, but I'm trying to make a point. Rather, we were all like the rats in the sewer, reveling in the filth of the cesspool and contributing to its vileness. And it's into this quagmire of muck that God sends his pure, sinless, holy son. Now, maybe my terminology is a bit extreme, cesspool of sewage, rats, reveling in filth, quagmire of muck, but I think it's super important for this illustration that in order for us to have a proper perspective 
and a correct understanding of man's sin as well as of God's mercy and grace, we must see who we are relative to the holiness of a perfect God and not relative to other people around us. This is so important because I think most unbelievers in the world today have a false, elevated view of themselves. Most people generally like to think of themselves as good people. Not perfect by any means, but good, good enough overall. And so when they hear talk of God the Father, if they don't reject him outright, they automatically, because of, they automatically basically think that, well, I put myself sort of into this weird position of a quasi-child of God. I'm created by him, and so I must be a child, and therefore if we are in some kind of uh, danger because of our sin, well, um, as God's child, isn't he kind of sort of obligated to save me? It's kind of like how you and I as parents would absolutely jump into fire to save our own children whom we love. Of course, we would sacrifice ourselves for the sake of our beloved children. But is this how God really sees the unsaved? Well, on one hand, yes, that's why he sent Jesus. But on the other hand, absolutely not. Brothers and sisters, we need to clearly understand and clearly communicate that all unbelievers are condemned sinners under the wrath of a holy God. And although we all probably know this, sometimes we want to avoid sounding too extreme or too judgmental with unbelievers. So we soften and then we deviate from the truth. And if we're not careful... We can share our faith with unbelievers with a warped view of humanity. And if and when we do this, the gospel itself becomes warped. For example, imagine someone sharing their faith in the following manner. You know, God loves you so much. If you only knew how much he loves you and wants the best for your life, but right now, you're lost and separated from your heavenly Father. You've made mistakes. You've taken the wrong path. But don't feel bad. Everyone has done it. I've done it. After all, nobody's perfect. And God loves you anyway so, so much. But this, my friend, is why you need Jesus. He came to save you because you are so precious in his sight. And he cannot stand to live without you. I mean, picture this. Imagine, if you will, when, when you were a small child, your mom and dad got separated from you and lost you in a scary, dangerous place. They would search for you and do anything they could to find you because you are their child, wouldn't they? Well, that's exactly how God feels and why your heavenly Father sent Jesus into this world. He came to search for you, to find you, and to die for you. Imagine someone loving you that much. Do you see how valuable you are to him? Now imagine if upon finding you, you ran away from Jesus. Wouldn't that be foolish? Of course it would. Then don't do that today, my friend. Come to Jesus and you will find him waiting for you with open arms. Would you like to come home and enjoy the abundant life that God has for you? 
then pray this prayer with me right now and you will be saved. Cha-ching! One more notch in my evangelism belt. You know, tragically, I remember sharing the gospel in a very similar, if not exact same way. But is that really the gospel? There may be aspects of truth in what I just shared, but is that really the gospel? Absolutely not. And why not? What important fact did I leave out? That's right, sin. The horrible and awful reality of sin is what makes Jesus' sacrifice necessary in the first place. If we are not that bad, and if our situation is not that desperate, then why did the very Son of God have to die for us? Why did he have to go through such a horrible, awful death in order to save us? It's because we are that bad. And our situation is that desperate. Before we were saved by the mercy of God, we were, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, dead in our trespasses and sins. We were children, yes, but we were children of God's wrath, not his love. That's why Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And because of that, not only did we not deserve saving, we actually deserve death and eternal punishment in hell. This is the true scriptural reality of every unsaved person who has ever lived. And so we need to tell unbelievers the truth in love. I'm not saying to call them rats, not at all. Don't do that. But I am saying that we cannot shy away from the truth. We cannot gloss over the fact that before a holy God, we are all sinful. We have all rebelled against our Creator, and we are all, therefore, under God's wrath. Again, does that sound harsh? Yes, it does. It is a very harsh reality that our sin has put us in, and it's no one's fault but our own. But until an unbeliever comes to grips with that truth, he or she will never, never understand the desperate need for forgiveness, their desperate need for a Savior. Nor will they ever understand the goodness and the loving kindness of a God who would send his own Son to die and to perish on our behalf. God forgives us and he saves us. And he does so by purifying us, as it says at the end of verse 5, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? Well, using the early imagery of rats in a cesspool, he cleanses off our filth, the filth of our sin, and then he changes us from the rats that we once were into adopted children of God. All of this happens because we are regenerated and renewed, made new by the Holy Spirit. As Paul says in verse 6, look at that, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, the image of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon us is not that of a, a gentle trickle of water, but rather of a flooding. 
and overflow, a pouring out of the cleansing, renewing power of God's Spirit. Picture that in your mind for just a moment, being washed clean of all the filth of our sin by a gushing torrent of clean water. Isn't that what we're supposed to see through the image of baptism? And what is the result of that cleansing? Well, look again at verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, what is an heir? H-E-I-R. Think about that for just a moment. As a Christian, you have been made an heir of God. How powerful is that statement? How powerful is that statement so that it should, it should actually stun us right now? It should stun us. Imagine if you just found out just now that you were a distant relative of Warren Buffett or John, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, and that when they die, you and your children were going to receive just a fraction of their vast wealth. Well, I'm sure you'd be ecstatic about your good fortune, wouldn't you? All your financial worries and concerns would be over. The security of your future and your children's future would be set. You would be filled with hope, wouldn't you? The way you looked at life would be different. You could afford to be generous and giving, and, I, and hopefully you would be. Well, what this gospel is telling us is that we are not just heirs of some puny, temporal, earthly fortune. We are heirs of God. Do you know what that means? He is the king. He's the king, not of just this planet Earth. He is the king of the universe. And what does God own? He owns everything. He owns life. He owns eternity. And he has given us the hope of eternal life. You know, if you thought that being an heir of Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk would fill you with so much hope for the future, how much more should we be filled with an even greater hope and be given over to even more magnanimous, generous living as an heir of the king of the universe? Brothers and sisters, if we would only truly embrace the reality of what it means to be a child of the king. And this is what Paul is trying to impress upon us. You are indeed a child of God. And of all people, we should be those who live with great, great hope. And because our hope is not in the things of this world, we can live separate from it. We can live different from the rest of the world. We can be obedient, though treated unfairly. We can hold our tongues instead of lashing out. We can be gentle when we are maligned, kind when people are mean to us, courteous even though everyone else is rude, and above all, love even when we're hated. And if you're thinking right now, well, Dave, I don't know if I can believe that. Well, let's move on because Paul addresses that doubt in the next verse. Look at verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. The saying is trustworthy. 
Here Paul is saying the gospel, what we have just read in verses 4 through 7, is trustworthy. You can believe it. You can depend upon it. You can stake your very life on it, and it will never let you down. And because it is solid like a rock, Paul tells Titus, insist on these things, Titus. Insist on this trustworthy message. Affirm it confidently. Assert it emphatically. Teach it thoroughly so that everyone who truly believes in God would devote themselves to good works. And as the truth of the gospel begins to grow deeper and deeper into a person's life, they will start living like Christians. The connection will be made between what is inside and what comes out on the outside so that what we believe on the inside is what the world will start to see on the outside. These are the things that Paul says at the end of verse 8 are excellent and profitable for all people, for all mankind, for this entire world. And then Paul concludes his exhortation to Titus with this final warning. Look at verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Now these are the same kinds of people that Paul had been warning Titus of in chapter 1, who are causing trouble in the church. Back in chapter 1, Paul says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Now, Titus wasn't the only one uh, facing these false teachers. Timothy was also facing the same kind of people, same challenge in, in the city of Ephesus. And whether it was in Crete or in Ephesus or even here in Honolulu, brothers and sisters, we need to understand that these kinds of people have existed within the church from the very beginning. And they can still exist within the church even to this day. Now, for our purposes today, we won't go into the details of what these false teachers were teaching, but we're going to focus more on how Paul tells Titus to address them. And his approach might initially seem to contradict Everything that he's just said about being courteous and gentle and kind. But here's what we have to remember. Being humble, gentle, and courteous, and not being slanderous of others does not mean that you are ignorant to the schemes and conniving of sinful people. We need to be alert. We need to use wisdom to identify and avoid people who only want to quarrel and who only want to fight about foolish things that profit no one. Now, keep in mind, these are not people with whom we simply disagree about something, whether it be eschatology or the complementary roles of men and women within the church or, or politics or immigration or the economy. I'm not saying that there is no room in the church for disagreement or differences of opinion. There always will be differences of opinion, and we must be able to work through these things as brothers and sisters in Christ. But the people Paul is referring to here are described as being defiled, and unbelieving, people who to, to whom nothing is pure, both their minds and their consciences defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Paul says they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work, warped and sinful. 
And so when we do encounter these kinds of people within the church, how are we to deal with them? Well, initially, in the same way that we're to treat all people, not to speak evil of them, but instead try to avoid quarreling with them, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards them. Why? Because we too remember that we were just like them. And it is the gospel of Christ that is lived out through our gentle, kind words and actions that will hopefully, that will hopefully save that person just as we were saved. Again, we do this for the sake of the gospel so that God would be glorified and that people would be saved. But it is precisely for this same reason, for the sake of the gospel and the glory of God, that after one and then two warnings, if they continue to stir up division, we are to have nothing more to do with that person. And again, same question. Does that sound harsh? Well, as imperfect human beings, we can often be too harsh with people, can't we? But I think the point here is just the opposite. Sometimes we can be too lenient or perhaps more accurately too fearful of confrontation or too worried about hurting someone's feelings. Listen, husbands, if someone is about to hurt your bride or parents, if someone is threatening your children, do you hesitate from confronting them? Do you worry about hurting the offender's feelings? No, of course not. Then why would we not do the same for Christ's bride, Christ's children, Christ's church? When we encounter a person who condemns himself through his own stubborn, unrepentant actions, we should not shy away from excommunication from the church according to what the scripture tells us in Matthew 18. Paul is saying here that this is not only appropriate, but sometimes even expected. Do not take lightly the holiness, the purity, and the safety of God's bride, God's children, his church. But in saying that, we must always remember that the heart behind our actions is restoration. The two warnings, even the excommunication, these are all done with the intent of leading that person back to Jesus Christ, back to him. And isn't that the entire point of these last two messages? Pointing people back to Jesus Christ. Now, as we wrap this up, over the past two weeks, Paul has been reminding us as Christians to live submissive, obedient, good, gentle, holy lives in a fallen, broken world so that through our good works, Jesus Christ would be illuminated so that believer, unbelievers will be able to see the beauty of our Savior and the power that he has given to each one of us to get, live a new life as new creations, as changed people who have been changed from the inside out. For Paul reminds us to remember that you and I, we were all just like all the other unbelievers in this world, lost sinners, children of God's wrath and without hope. But in the gospel, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is great hope. There's hope of redemption, hope of forgiveness, hope of renewal, hope of new life, hope of eternal life.
my brothers and sisters, hear the word of God this morning. And let's show to the world the hope of Jesus Christ as we go forth and live like lights in a very dark world. Would you pray with me? Father, again, we thank you and we praise you, Lord, for all that you have done for us in Christ. That, Lord, though we be so undeserving, while we were still sinners, at just the right time, you sent Christ to die for us and to save us. Lord, what mercy and what grace and what love that must have taken for you to do such a thing, and yet we are so grateful that you did. Father, I pray that you would make it very real to us, the true reality of who we are before you, a holy and righteous God, and that you would convict our hearts by your Spirit, and that you would change us, Lord, that you would save us by the washing and the renewal and regeneration of the Holy Spirit who has been poured out upon us to cleanse us from our sins. Lord, we thank you for all these things. We pray, God, that you would now help us as we go forth in this world to live as saved people, to live as Christians, to live, live as ones who understand and know the glory, the redemptive power of what you have done through Christ. We love you so much. We thank you and praise you and pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.